Thank you. It's good to be with you guys. I know it's a, uh, a wet, cold night in Toronto. So you guys are the, the few and the brave. But I'm excited. I really am. This is the, the second talk in which uh, we'll be exploring how art contributes to the formation of our humanity. In our backyard in Durham, North Carolina, we have a broad-leafed fig tree. Now, last summer, as best as uh, we could guess, it produced around 200 figs. Uh, Some of it we picked as we walked in and out of the back door off of our kitchen. And of that of which we picked, uh, Fader turned 120 into 19 jars of jam. Brandy fig jam, to be exact. Made of sugar, vanilla, cinnamon, lemon juice, agave nectar, and, of course, brandy. Now, that which we did not pick, which felt like an awful lot, in part was eaten by the black crows that operate a diagonal flight plan over our house. Uh, in part was eaten by a family of squirrels that resides in the woods at the end of our, of our yard, and in part fell to the ground and was eaten by no one. Now, a question that crossed my mind often as I watched the figs rotting on the grass was this. What exactly was God's point in creating a tree that bore more fruit than would be consumed by necessitous creatures? My fig tree became, if you will, a kind of theological problem for me. Yet however I felt about the waste of figs on the ground, the first thing to assert is that my fig tree, strictly speaking, is not necessary in the cosmos. It does not need to exist. It is excess. We could, if need be, go on about our lives just fine without it. But if the fig tree is excess, then really so was the fig jam. And so are all trees. And so are the squirrels. And so are the crows. And so is the whole cosmos. Unnecessary. Does not need to exist. It exists instead as an overflow of the plenitude of God's Trinitarian life. So, what does this have to do with the arts? Everything, quite frankly. In this talk, I want to explore with you how the arts can both remind us of the gracious excess that marks God's creation and how they can form us to be citizens of God's economy of abundance. Now, why in my title do I call abundance a problem? It is a problem I propose in two ways. It is a problem first in that we often do not see God's economy of abundance at work around us. This would be a problem of a poor imagination. And second, it is a problem in that we often do not live as if we belonged to God's abundant economy. This would be a problem of ethics. Or of the heart. What do we see and where might we live instead? We see and live in an economy of scarcity. Now, an economy of scarcity exists with the fear that there will not be enough, that there will not be enough time, that there will not be enough energy, that there will not be enough friendship, that there will not be enough opportunity or resources or goodness in the world. At bottom is the fear that there will not be enough God. The temptation to live in an economy of scarcity is unfortunately deeply embedded in our hearts. 
Now, I understand uh, what it feels like to live in an economy of scarcity. Ever since I was 25 years old, I have had the strong desire to have children. Now, to my dismay, I did not marry till I was 35. And to our continuing dismay, it was difficult for us to have children. What has my fear been? My, my fear has been that there would not be enough time, that we would run out of time to have children, and that by the time my first child goes to college, I'll be 57. And her grandparents at that time will be very, very old, which leaves me with an ache that I cannot shake in my heart. My fear is that there would not be enough health because of Phaedra, my wife's ailments. I fear that there won't be enough help because of limited medical intelligence and a restrictive health insurance plan. The temptation to become anxious and stingy always hovers nearby. I can imagine you have your own fears that tempt you to live in an economy of scarcity. So what kind of help might the arts provide us? An invaluable one, I believe. The theologian Stanley Hauerwas reminds us that we do not see reality simply by opening our eyes. Our sight is limited because of our creaturehood, and it is broken because of our sin. So what can works of arts do? They can help us to see what we are often blind to, that God's economy of abundance, marked by gracious excesses, stands above us and beneath us and in places we have yet to imagine. The arts invite us in faith to reject an economy of scarcity with, with its constant appeals to take matters into our own hands and to embrace God's economy instead. My task. My task uh, uh, to persuade you of this idea involves four things. First, I'd like to take a theological look at Genesis 1. Second, to retell a biblical story. Third, to explain briefly how the arts generate excess, gracious excess. And fourth, suggests what it might look like for you and me to become formed as agents of God's gracious excess. First then, a little bit of theology with Karl Barth as our guide. Here's what Karl Barth, the great 20th century German theologian, said. He said, creation is an act of the overflowing of God's inward glory. It is neither an accident nor divine necessity. It is an absolute gift of God. Those with eyes to see, for them the universe is revealed as the theater of the history of the covenant of grace. Now, in what sense is creation an act of grace? Well, let's consider a few elements. Time. How is time an expression of gracious excess? Time, Bart says, it occurs in the sphere of grace. At the fall, humanity becomes lost and tumbles into what Bart calls lost time. Fallen into sin and isolated from God, humanity now experiences time as distorted and as frustrating. Yet even as time begins in grace, so God in his covenant offers again to humanity the time of grace. Bart says, in such a grace, time does not flee, but flows, and is not empty, but is fulfilled. And in Christ, there is always enough time. Now, what about food? 
commenting on Genesis 1, Bart calls humanity the most necessitous of all creatures. Now, how so? He says that while the vegetation does not depend on humanity for its life, humanity does entirely. God gives a human creature fruits and vegetables to subsist on, yet it is not only enough to get by. The creature is given an excess of delectable foods. Now, what kinds of foods? I thought we should not be only hearers of the word, we should be tasters of the word to to taste and see that what? The Lord is is good indeed. So, I asked uh, a good man, George Sweetman, if he would allow me to do a live illustration for you to taste and see the Lord is good. So, George, go ahead and uh, hand out this little example of the kinds of foods that combine not only the work of God in creation, but the work of humanity in culture. So these are our jelly bellies. And uh, you all know what jelly bellies are, right? Okay, so um, I'm going to allow George to hand them out, and I'm going to continue. But as soon as you get them, taste them, and then I might pause at some point and ask you what flavor you tasted. And if you know anything about Hogwarts... These are not uh, Hogwarts-friendly jelly beans, which would be the kind of jelly beans that would really surprise you. Uh, The simple point with our jelly beans is to see that all these flavors, strictly speaking, are not necessary. You could live fine with just lemon as the flavor that God designed creation to subsist on. But we have so many, and God gave us an imagination to make all kinds of combinations of flavors. So they're a sign of God's grace, and where Christ is, the food is always plentiful. So this is uh, our, you are now experiencing a foretaste of the kingdom fulfilled yet to come. Okay, how about air and sea? Now, air uh, air and sea play upon the stage of divine grace. God fills the air and the sea with teeming creatures, and in so doing, he both contains and subverts chaos. Yes, George, I will also have some. (laughs) Thank you very much. All right, yes. Uh, I even, through the audio and tasting... Mm. What is this? Oh, this is kind of like um, cream, cream soda. Cream soda, that's, that's, that's very nice. I'm holding my hand. There we go. Now, the writer of Genesis describes the fecundity and expansion of aquatic and aerial denizens, which God creates not only in love, but in fact as a sign over against the false gods of ancient Near Eastern societies. So air and sea also play upon the stage of grace. How about Sabbath? Bart says this about Sabbath. Against the popular perception that Sabbath... uh, No, against popular perception, the Sabbath, he argues is not to be seen as a recuperation after a toilsome and well-done job. This view, he says, gets the Sabbath all wrong. Why? Because humanity is not the crown of creation. Sabbath is. And our lives would be more rightly ordered if we thought of the Sabbath and not Monday as the first day of our week. He says the beginning of human life on this view would begin with a holiday, and not an imposed task, with joy and not with toil and trouble. It began, that is, on the day of grace. And what would the human creature be left with? 
it would be left with an invitation to enter completely into this grace and how that would uh, revolutionize the way we thought of work. Adam and Eve. Adam neither seeks nor finds a home. Instead, it is prepared for him, and in a special third act of his creation, he is brought home. This is a grace, and it is an Adam who thinks of a woman as his helpmeet. God thinks of her, God makes her, God brings her to him, and this is a grace for both of them. Sex is a grace too. Sex isn't only for procreation, Bart argues, it is for pleasure and for intimacy and for exploration and for ecstasy. Where it is abused, there is shame, and shame is possible only where there is disgrace. But where sex is rightly experienced, there is innocence. And in that innocence, God's grace adorns the man and the woman with fullness of life. The sum of the creation, then, is this, that grace marks it from top to bottom, from beginning to end, and more so even. What is the problem? The problem is that too many of us live uh, in an economy of scarcity, that we have forgotten the economy of abundance that God has given to us, entrusted to us. As we live in an economy of scarcity, devoid of these gracious excesses. Now, as a child growing up in Guatemala City, I attended a private Austrian school. And this is how things worked at my school. That's me, uh, the non uh, brown tinted skinned one. Um, okay, this is the way my school worked. Uh, in kindergarten, the first year that we began our schooling, and I say the first year kindergarten because we had kindergarten, advanced kindergarten, and preparatory before you get to primary school. We started off with 120 students, and you had to apply to get into the school as a four or five year old. There were 120 students spread out of four sections, so 30 students in each section. By the first year of primary school, four years later, there were only three sections less left. That is, only 90 students left. Why is that? Because if you failed a secondary course like uh, history or the arts, you were automatically kept back one year. If you failed a primary course, uh, which would be something like German language or math, you were automatically expelled. By the time we reached high school, there were only 60 students left. That is half of what we started off with because everybody had been expelled by that point. Now, the dread of failing, the possibility of corporal punishment, three hours of homework every night, and the pressure to be in the top three tapped into a fear inside of me, and I became driven. I became a driven person not just at school, but in every arena of life. I became driven in my friendships. I became driven in sports. I became driven in leadership activities, and I became driven in the church to be the best, to be excellent above all else. The need to be excellent became a kind of addiction. As a teenager, I expected a lot from myself. I also expected a lot from the people around me. That made me disappointed often. In college, I resented the fact that while my peers would be reading the New York Times and the Foreign Affairs Journal at breakfast, I had to read the Bible. In seminary, I was incapable of having fun for the fun of it. Why? Because it felt frivolous. The work of God needed doing. My friend Mark Clausen, a good Canadian friend of mine, tried dragging me out to the movies on Sunday night, but I always felt slightly guilty about it. If you had met me in my 20s, you would have met a perfectionist who secretly treated the world like a pragmatist. 
up close. I was not, not always the easiest person to be around, and you just have to ask my family to find that out. Creation as grace, not the first thing on my mind. Task number two, a biblical story. In John 2, the beloved disciple tells us that Jesus miraculously produces wine at a wedding feast that takes place in a little town of Cana. Now, you're likely familiar with the story, so I won't go into the details of it. Instead, let me point out God's economy of abundance at work. First, toward the end of the feast, Jesus generates an excess of quantity, over 800 gallons. This is certainly more than could be reasonably consumed, especially when all they needed was a few extra bottles. Second, Jesus generates an excess of quality. The wine was better than expected. It is as if they expected a table wine, but instead got a 1995 Chateau Margaux, valued at 402 U.S. dollars per bottle. You can calculate that in Canadian, but I still suggest to you it's a lot of money for one bottle of wine. Finally, Jesus generates an excess of kindness. He offers an exquisitely good wine to an inebriated crowd whose capacity to appreciate the gift of fine wine is at best questionable. A casual reader will not be faulted for thinking that Jesus engages in an inexcusable act of waste. Could this not have been used for other better purposes? So how do we reckon with this apparent waste? I love the way the 19th century Hungarian Presbyterian, Hungarian Presbyterian, no less, Minister Adolf Seffier summarized it. He says, this was simply a superfluity, a luxury. They had no wine, and what does this mean? For it is a sign and must signify something, that God created man not merely that he should endure existence, that he should drag through life, but that there should be a festivity, a gladness within him. Not only that he should be reconciled to his existence and have what is needful, but that he should feel within him a music. That he should be able to say, it is a joy to live. So that in one sense the world is not wrong when it seeks for the ornamental and the beautiful. It is an instinct of what is true. That God created us for brightness and glory. This miracle... St. John tells us, is Jesus' first sign. You all are university students, maybe seminary students. You've probably read these things. So the question is, a sign of what? A sign of his identity? Yes. A sign that the new work of Yahweh is afoot? Yes. But also think that it hints at a recurring feature in Jesus' ministry. In John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He feeds them more than they are able to consume at the time. The disciples afterwards collect 12 baskets of, yes, you guessed, excess bread. In John 12, Mary of Bethany pours out a nard over Jesus' head, valued at a year's worth of wages. That, we are told, is a lot of money. Now, I find that I have heard this story a lot, and I have heard people say that it's a lot of money and that this nard was valued at but I've never had a really gut sense of how that would feel. So I did a little bit of an analogous exploration. I thought to myself, what to me would feel like a lot of money that then was spent anointing Jesus' head? So I thought of um, the, uh, one of the partners in Facebook. Uh, his name is uh, Eduardo Saverin, Brazilian, studied at Harvard. 
he, um, he owns 5% share in Facebook. So I thought to myself, well, you know, Facebook is worth X. How much does that mean he's making? It's about Y. And, okay, I'm going to think of it in, in terms of, you know, my experience. So I'm a student right now, and it's hard to gauge what my salary is. But let's just say, uh, this is going to be U.S. terms. What's the U.S.-Canadian uh, exchange right now? Uh, almost the same? Okay, so good. So I, I, let's just say I make around $48,000 a year, which to me seems like a lot of money. 48000 a year, it's about $1,000 a week, which is about $142 a day, which if I work an eight-hour day is about $18 an hour. I think that's kind of a lot of money, right? And then I thought to myself, how long would it, would it take me to make as much money as Eduardo Severin makes as a 5% share owner in Facebook? I calculated. You know how long it would take me? 6,000 years to make what he is valued at 2.5 billion. That to me felt like a lot of money. That to me I think is helpful to understand how the disciples felt themselves when Mary poured the nard over Jesus' head. That is a lot of money that could have been used for something better. Now in Jesus' resurrection, to quote Jeremy Begbie, the Spirit gives Jesus a body that is not merely alive, but hyper alive, excessively alive. And God pours out his spirit so that you and I can enjoy here and now a foretaste of the abundant future already previewed in Jesus. So the question is, how is it in fact that people respond to this amazing work of God? As they often do by choosing to live in an economy of scarcity. So let's go over the stories again. After the 5,000 are fed, the people refuse to see who Jesus really is and decide that they will make Jesus a king by force. For Judas, Mary's behavior was much too much, and he gives the stereotypical, and in his case, duplicitous response, why wasn't this perfume sold and given to the poor? Many during the early centuries of the church refused to believe that people rose from the dead and that creation could be nearly as good as Jesus' resurrection said it was. This temptation to live in an economy of scarcity goes all the way back to the garden, where Adam and Eve chose to believe that the garden was not enough, which, as you well know, is a belief that God was not enough. And yet in Jesus' ministry, we encounter a clear underlying pattern of abundance. There is always more than enough when you are near Jesus. It is as if Jesus were saying to his disciples, there is more grace than you will ever be able to imagine. John 1.16 might put it this way. From Christ's fullness, we have all received grace piled on top of grace. Karl Barth calls this kind of life a creaturely splendor. If this is what we see at work in Jesus' life, how then do the arts bear witness to God's economy of abundance? Let me unpack briefly here in our third task three ways that the arts generate excess. First, excess in the arts may refer to an expansive quality. An expansive quality. Now, what I don't mean by this is the following anecdote that my wife often uh, appreciates me sharing. So this is going to be a tangential story to tell you what I don't mean. About 10 years ago, I was in Pasadena, California, visiting Fuller Seminary for a film and theology conference. I was excited about it. I was interested in movies and theology. And I had recently graduated from five years of seminary in which I had lived, my first year of seminary, I lived on a $35 per month food budget. 
I lived slim pickings. Uh, I did, could not afford to buy meats. I could not afford to buy dairies. And I could not afford to buy the one thing that I love most in the world, and that was uh, fruit juice. I just love fruit juice, but I couldn't afford it. So for five years, I lived without these things. So here at the end of it, um, I'm thinking I have a little bit of spare change. And I was visiting a friend there, and I got up early in the morning. I went for a long walk, and I, I ended up in a little grocery store, and I thought, what do I want to do today? I want to buy fruit juice. So I went down the aisle of fruit juices, and, 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 and there's this bank of fruit juices. And I thought to myself, which one am I going to drink today? And I thought back to this whole memory of my dad. And I thought, you know, I love my dad. I want to be like my dad. And I remember, I don't know why, my dad used to drink a lot of prune juice. I'm going to be like my dad. I'm going to drink some prune juice. So I pulled off a thing this big of prune juice. And I thought, oh, this is my breakfast. So I'm just going to down the whole thing. It's going to revitalize me. So I'm walking down the sidewalk back to my friend's apartment, chugging it down, praying, praising the Lord for this season of my life. And I get to the apartment, and lo and behold, things are in movement. <laughs> and it dawned on me why it is that me and my father drank prune juice, because you might have practical need of it. So for the next 48 hours, uh, there was a prune juice after effect. I mean, you guys know I'm pretty, it's a diuretic, right? So that is an expansive quality of... Uh, food art. That is not what I mean by the arts generate an expansive effect. But it is something that happened to me. Now, what I do mean is that the arts invite us into experiences that remind us how we'll never be able to exhaust the mystery of being a human being in this world. As Sam Wells, uh, ethicist at Duke Divinity School, puts it, God's inexhaustible creation, limitless grace, relentless mercy, enduring purpose, fathomless love, it is just too much to contemplate, assimilate, understand. Superhero movies, Bob's Dylan, Bob Dylan's music, Martha Graham's choreography. No story, no song, no dance will finally grasp all that is interesting about life on planet Earth. The visual artists Christo and Jean-Claude's site-specific installations. The top one is in Japan. Reveling in fabric, reveling in color, making sense of these things. Poetry is a way for us to explore the mystery of being a human person. And uh, there's a poet named Billy Collins. He was the poet laureate uh, for a season in the U.S. And uh, he wrote some very delightful poetry uh, reminding us that not all poetry has to be serious. Now, how many of you enjoy reading poetry once a year? <laughs> there you go. It's a generous time. Okay. Well, um, Billy Collins wrote a poem, uh, which I personally appreciate. And so let me preface it by asking a question. How many of you have ever lived, not, not that you owned, but ever lived near somebody who owned a dog that barked loudly and uncontrollably? near like loud barking dogs. Okay, good. This poem is for you. The title of this uh, poem is another reason I don't keep a gun in the house. <laughs> the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. His barking is, is the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. 
they must switch him on on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony, full blast. But I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for Bark and Dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous Barking Dog solo, that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. <laughs> Another reason I don't keep a gun in the house, making sense of an all-too-common experience. Secondly, excess in the arts may also refer to an allusive quality. By this I mean that our experience of the world often involves more than our minds can conceptually or analytically grasp. As Michael Polanyi, the philosopher, uh, says it, we always know more than we can tell. This is true of all of us. There are things that we know, but we can't always tell it in conceptual, discursive language. To reduce the world to what we can rationally or directly comprehend is to live in a world that, in fact, knows nothing of the richly suggestive quality of God's world. A few examples. My wife is a visual artist, and she created this work titled The Annunciation. And, uh, well, try as we may, no amount of doctrinal statements can sufficiently exhaust the mystery of the Annunciation, of the Incarnation, of what it means for God, the second person of the Trinity, to become born in the womb of a peasant woman. So the arts come along and offer us allusive, suggestive, figurative, metaphorical explorations of what this might mean. And so here you have Mary on the left, and so the progressive gestation, and you have this dancing uh, angel Gabriel. And then down here, of course, you have a, a, a reference to classical imagery. Uh, with respect to the Annunciation. A second example. Uh, there's a dance company in Austin, Texas, which is my hometown, called the Blue Lapis Dance Company. And they, they, uh, they created an, uh, an art, uh, a dance show as a site-specific uh, show. And it took place uh, at the site of an abandoned Intel building project. Intel was going to build a, uh, a site for themselves in the middle of Austin. They ran out of money. And this piece of uh, concrete and, and steel ugliness was an eyesore for years, right in the middle. Nothing was done with it. You drive by and you think, it is ugly. It's polluting our eye space in here. So she thought, well, what if we did something beautiful in a place that is ugly. It's run down. Nothing's being done with it. And uh, then this is what resulted. I don't know if you can see it. I, I don't know if... Is there a way to dim maybe some of these? Oh, perfect. Brilliant. 
Yeah. Uh, any more dimming that you can do is you can cut a bank. Um, really great. So she lit the space, and then she um, she created a, a cable, uh, a cabling mechanism, so that her dancers could be suspended from about five, six uh, floors worth over the space and could hang there. Or they could fly out from it. So they would take a running start from inside, you know, sort of the concrete floor, and they would run and they run out into the open air and then fly back. Or they would hang from fabric. There's a really beautiful use of fabric. Everform, gorgeous, exquisite. Now, she called it a requiem, a meditation on death, and um, really, in a sense, the great form of ugliness that squelches life. So try as we may, death eludes our capacity to rationally comprehend it or, or to exclusively rationally comprehend it. And so he, he had this form of dance, music, uh, uh, you know, the use of light, uh, fabric that was deeply, deeply uh, stirring. And it was a deeply religious experience for a lot of people. And uh, here was an artist doing something in the middle of the city in a space that had been abandoned, saying perhaps there is something more that could be done in this space, something to remind us perhaps that death will not have the last word. So over against the temptations of an economy of scarcity, the arts invite us into a meaningfully fecund experience of creation. This is what it finally looked at, like when they uh, exploded, <laughs> detonated this building, and now they have something else much more pleasant in there. So thirdly, artistic access may refer to a pragmatically non-useful quality. By this, I don't mean that the arts don't have a use. They do. All the arts have of all kinds of uses, and their uses range as broadly as a range of human activity, which is near infinite. What I mean here is that we cannot reduce the worth of creation to what we can pragmatically grasp, that is, to what is materially and practically useful. Let me give you a few examples of things that you would say, well, all we need is X, and here artists come along, or, or others, and say, well, is that what human life is for, for mere existence? Are we not made for a delight or what the Christian philosopher Nicholas Walterserf uh, calls aesthetic delight is an important dimension of God's shalom? So we have all probably been in airports or at least been near airports. I visited uh, the Narita Japan airport uh, a few years ago. Has anybody flown through the Narita uh, airport? Yeah. Okay, good. So uh, the idea is this. Airports are useful for what? For getting people from A to B via the air. Now, all you need is a place to show your ticket, walk, and get into a plane. But here is Narita uh, Japan Airport saying, surely there is more than simply transferring bodies from one place to another. Is there not a pleasure to enjoy along the way and... Uh, they say yes, and they have installed really beautiful works of fine art along the way. Here's uh, a walkway. You'd be walking down. Here's my wife, Adra, 
And all along these walkways, all kinds of really interesting artwork, different kinds of designs, styles, forms. Here is what uh, happens when you pick up your luggage, a bank of color. Here's the last one. I'm standing in front of a couple of pieces. I thought, this is just amazing. I, I mean, we, we actually had a few hours to spare, so we just, we just looked at all the art. And we thought, isn't this wonderful that an airport has figured out that, uh, in fact, a lot of folks going through airports are tired, they're harried, they're, maybe they're frustrated, uh, maybe they're anxious about something. So why not enliven the space in which they're in with, with things that are beautiful? And I, um, I thank God for them. The color red. The color red at one level is useful for very specific things like identifying blood or like identifying a traffic light. Now, artists come along and they say, you know, red isn't just red. Have you ever paused to think that red doesn't have to exist in the cosmos? Uh, maybe believer artists come along and say, do you realize God made red? I mean, really, have you thought about it? Like, it's red. Like, red is red. And then what artists do is they do this. They paint things that do one thing only, perhaps, which is to say, it is a wonder that red exists. Let us pause and contemplate. Yes, pause and contemplate. Red is a wonder. Now, obviously, that kind of activity is moving very close to the activity of worship. Not worshiping red, but worshiping the God who made it possible for a world to generate the color red. And then artists like Andy Goldsworthy come along and create very fragile, vulnerable works of art from things like leaves of different colors. He creates them. He photographs them. He himself enjoys them in the making of them. The photograph is a way for us to enjoy them. But uh, pop quiz, guess how long this work of art lasted? <laughs> Seconds? Minutes? As long as there wasn't a breeze, and off it went. And people would say, hey, what are you doing wasting your time creating these little leaf installations? Andy Goldsworthy is saying, they're leaves. Have you thought about it? Leaves change colors. It's amazing. I think this is a deeply Christian activity, an activity of discipleship, an activity of helping us know how to worship, that at the end of the day, we worship God not for anything, but for himself alone, for his sake alone. So artists are coming along and saying, hey, there's some muscles to, to be cultivated here with respect to worship, to enjoying God for his sake alone. And we can enjoy the things that he has made for their sake alone. Why? Because God himself takes delight in them. So that would be another example. A final example is uh, something that uh, I'm going to show you online. So we're going to do a little switch of uh, laptops here. It's a Sony Bravia commercial where um, it's not simply a celebration of one color. It's, it's a celebration of many colors. And when I first saw this, I thought, that's wow factor. Obviously, it's a commercial, right? So that something is being sold. But I believe the backstory, and if you know the backstory, you, you can help sort of correct me. But this, this complex was to be demolished. An arrangement was made with artists who had an idea to do something interesting and beautiful and fantastical in the space before it was demolished. So artists come along and say, uh, dear neighbor, 
please don't take for granted the fact that color exists in this world. And they did do something like that. So over against the temptation of uh, an economy of scarcity, the arts invite us to taste an excess of requirement in God's world. So to summarize this section, the arts generate experiences of excess that extend beyond our ability to contain, uh, extend beyond our ability to conceptually comprehend, and extend beyond our ability to pragmatically measure. In this, I believe they bear witness to God's abundant economy. Now, if these are ways that art affords us a taste of excess, what might it mean for you and for me to be formed by them? So I think that's a quite complicated question. How would you and I become marked by this kind of artistic, gracious excess? It goes without saying that being exposed to Bob Dylan's music or Billy Collins' poetry or this kind of uh, commercial does not automatically make me a gracious person. In the same way that encountering Jesus' powers of bread multiplication did not automatically generate disciples. So what vices should I avoid with respect to this idea of artistic excess? And what virtues should I cultivate? The temptations to abuse excess, as you well know, are always at hand. Now, one temptation is the desire to live in a constant state of excess. This desire suggests a false notion of ecstasy. And one example that comes to mind is Christians who have a desire to remain in what I would call a, a state of ceaseless infatuation with God. That is, they want to be infatuated with God on a 24-7 basis instead of realizing that while infatuation maybe as an expression of eros, that is that kind of intense affection, romantic love, uh, is only one of the ways in which we love God, and mostly there's agapic, slow, steady kinds of love, the kinds of love that you are familiar with in friendships with others. Or those of you who are married know that you are not constantly, ceaselessly in a state of infatuation. That love is, is, is work, and it's worth that work. Now, a second temptation is to want to be engorged with excess. This suggests a false notion of fullness. Louis XIV's Palace of Versailles and Donald Trump's Tower serve only as exaggerated examples of more common behavior in Western society. That is, the desire to be engorged with excess. And a final uh, temptation is to want to experience instantaneous excess, which suggests a false notion of time. Here we seek to transcend time or to skirt around it as if time were an inconvenience to be endured. And I would say the recent surge of vampire-related novels uh, in Christian circles, no less, manifests our impatient appetite for the instant availability of niche products. Instead of allowing good work to simmer and become good over time, you remember Frank Peretti? <laughs> Frank Peretti? As was, uh, was my high school cop. Boy, I love Frank Peretti. He, you know, he wrote these... Or, you know, demons and angels. And, and I really enjoyed them. And I found them beneficial. And, you know, I mean, I, they're not great literature. But I thought the first couple were, were fine. But then his publisher wanted him just to crank it out. And that's what he did. And that's what happens all too often is, is we, certainly we as Christians, no less than, than anybody else, want things to happen quickly and immediately. 
and instantaneously, and there's something to be said for waiting. So how do you and I respond to these temptations to false access? Well, very shortly and simply, we embrace a lifestyle moderation or a rhythm. So against the temptation to live in a constant state of excess, we practice a rhythm of simplicity. And against the temptation to be engorged with excess, we embrace the virtue of generosity. And against the temptation to want instantaneous excess, we embrace the virtue of joyful patience, remembering that wine and good art and the work of God in the world mature best over time, not despite time. In Jesus' wilderness experience, Satan's first temptation is to say, feed yourself now. Take care of your needs by yourself. This is Satan's temptation to Jesus to live in an economy of scarcity. But instead of turning a few stones into a handful of loaves, Jesus offers his body as bread for the whole world. And now invites you and me by the power of the Holy Spirit to love our neighbors in generous and self-sacrificing ways and thereby to become citizens of God's abundant economy. To conclude, in our wait for children, uh, Fader and I uh, have faced the temptations to, to false excess or to distract ourselves uh, from the pain of the hurt, of the sorrow, of the anger, of God not answering our prayers, to, to distract ourselves with little indulgences, little things to sate ourselves, to quell the pain, perhaps to avoid looking at God. Now, has art helped us? I would say yes, and specifically Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins helped us through the years, uh, offering us an excess of joy. Uh, last year, I was in, uh, we were in New York City, and we went to see the Broadway musical of Mary Poppins. Has anybody seen uh, Mary Poppins? Oh, so good, so good, right? Oh, so good. So you have this fantastically designed uh, set the children are as cute as a button. And I'm not really sure wh why a button is cute, but they are as cute as a button. And then you have this, the effusive jolliness of Bert. You have these uh, fabulous uh, costumes. And then uh, they had the, there was this moment when um, Mary Poppins sings uh, A Spoonful of Sugar. You, you all know how that goes, ready? And just a Spoonful of sugar. Okay, so, so it's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like the marquee song. We're off in the balcony. We're like, oh, here she goes, about to sing it. And then there's this voice about eight seats down, low baritone. Oh, just a spoonful. A guy was so mesmerized by the play that he started singing out loud for everyone on the balcony to hear him. He was so fully committed to a spoonful of sugar. <laughs> and then Mary Poppins flies, right? Because she flies in the movie. She has to fly in the play. Well, Mary Poppins doesn't just fly across the stage. Mary Poppins flies into the audience. Not only does she fly into the audience, she flies towards us in the upper balcony. There's Mary Poppins flying up. And I got to tell you, the little kid in us just pretty much couldn't take it. Mary Poppins was coming to us. <laughs> now, what does Mary Poppins uh, do for us? Or why does Mary Poppins matter for Fader and for me? Well, after watching the play, Fader and I had a conversation. 
And um, the thing that the Holy Spirit stirred in our hearts was a reminder that God has already placed children in our lives in the forms of our nieces and nephews. That they are God's provision to us to bring in the joy that children uniquely bring into a person's life. And what we needed was a new imagination. We needed to, to see our lives differently, to see that, in fact, it is right there. And that God has opened our hearts with great love for these children. And the Spirit did open our eyes. Now, in God's gracious mercy, He did provide us a child. And we found out last Christmas, exactly on Christmas Day, we found out that we were pregnant. And six weeks ago, uh, we gave birth to Ruby Blythe Marie. And uh, I was looking for photographs earlier today to include here. I got to tell you, I got a little weepy. I got a little weepy because I've been waiting a long time to have my own children. And um, there she is, uh, a sweet little gift to us. Now, as you can imagine, that does not mean that we are no longer susceptible to the temptation of living in an economy of scarcity. Those of you who have children, you probably know what I'm talking about, even if you don't have children. Every day, Peter and I get to trust and to choose to trust God that despite whatever challenges have come our way, and we actually have had a rough go the first six weeks, that nonetheless, God has brought us into the economy of abundance. And I love that story of uh, Corey Timboom. And I remember she lived through the Holocaust, and she would have this imaginary vase that she would put a flower in every day just to remind us that God was present in, in beautiful forms. And uh, so whatever your situation is, whatever the circumstance of your life, whatever tragedy you face, whatever sorrow is a burden for you, God and Christ through the Spirit does want to open your eyes to see that there are provisions of grace around you. Uh, and in fact, you might be the provision of grace for a friend or for a family member. So can the arts teach us in their own unique languages how to relax, to enjoy life, and to remain content no matter our circumstances because we know that our lives take place in the sphere of God's gracious excess? I think so. By faith, with the Spirit's help, and the constant encouragement of kindred friends. Can the arts disciple us to live as people marked by God's abundant economy precisely because they bring us into a participation of Christ's grace piled on top of grace? I think so. By faith, with the Spirit's help, and the constant encouragement of kindred friends. Automatically? No. Not at all. Not automatically. By the God who makes it possible for a fig tree in our own backyard to generate more fruit than can be consumed by necessitous creatures, by that kind of God, by the kind of God that we see in the face of Jesus Christ, who himself gives us his spirit, absolutely, absolutely. And to that I say, amen and amen. Thank you.